Well, thank you. Sorry I was a couple minutes late, but I'm kind of glad I was because there's a big thing downstairs with the Orphan Sunday, so maybe people got a chance to look through it. Um, I'm a little nervous because normally I test my sound, so if the video doesn't work right, right away, but we're talking about Malachi today, and Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, but we are not saving it for last. It was kind of arbitrary reasons that we didn't save it for last, but um, I, I am going to go ahead and start this because it's a little bit longer of a Bible project video, but I, I just love these, and I think they do a really good job of explaining. I agree. Okay, good. Do you ever heard anybody pronounce it Malachi? <laughs> oh, no. I, Is that I how you pronounce it? It was start a movement. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to the Bible professor. That's what I'm going to do. I think it's really pronounced Malachi. Certain cultures. Right. The book of the prophet Malachi. He lived about a hundred years after the Israelites had returned from their Babylonian exile. And his message was directed to the people who had been living in Jerusalem for some time now. The temple had been rebuilt a while ago and things were not going well. Just remember the stories from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, when the Israelites first returned from exile, their hopes were high. They would return and rebuild their lives and the temple. All of the great promises of the prophets would come true. The Messiah would come and set up God's kingdom over a unified Israel and over the nations and bring justice and peace for all. But that's not what happened. The Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors, resulting in poverty and injustice. And so in Malachi, we find out just how corrupt this new generation has become. The book's designed as a series of disputes, and most sections begin with God saying something, making a claim or an accusation, and then Israel will disagree or question God's statement. And then God will respond and offer the last word. This happens six times. In the first three disputes, God exposes Israel's corruption, and in the final three disputes, he confronts their corruption. And the overall impression you get from these arguments and disputes is that the exile fundamentally didn't change anything in the people. Israel's hearts are as hard as ever. The first dispute starts when God says that he still loves his covenant people despite their failures. And Israel rudely objects, saying, how have you shown us any love? And so God reminds them of how he graciously chose the family of Jacob, their ancestor, to become the carrier of God's covenant promises, instead of Esau, his brother, and the family that came from him, who eventually came to ruin. Remember the stories from Genesis and the book of Obadiah. So right from this first dispute, Israel is exposed as suspicious doubting God's love and faithfulness. The second dispute exposes a problem with Israel's second temple. God accuses the people of despising and defiling the temple. And the people fire back, how have we despised you? And so God responds by focusing on the people, how they're bringing shamefully lame <coughs> offerings of these sick, blemished animals that show that they don't value or honor their God. But it's not just the people, it's the priests, too, who run the temple. They not only tolerate, but participate in these corrupt forms of worship. From top to bottom, God's people have proven faithless. In the third dispute, God accuses the Israelite men of treachery against him and their wives, which of course they deny. 
And God exposes the toxic combination of idolatry and divorce taking place. You have Israelite men marrying non-Israelite women and then adopting the worship of their wives' ancestral gods into their homes. Remember the story from Nehemiah chapter 13. And so Malachi connects this to a wave of men divorcing their wives for no good reason. And the people are all fine with this. And Malachi says, no, it's a betrayal of your covenant with God. And so Malachi transitions into the second set of disputes that confront Israel's rebellion. So the fourth dispute begins with the Israelites accusing God of neglect, saying, where is the God of justice? They see injustice and corruption abounding, and God seems to do nothing. So God responds by saying that he'll send a messenger who will prepare the people for God's personal return in the day of the Lord. He will come like fire to purify his people and to remove idolatry and sexual immorality and injustice so that only the faithful remnant is left to become his people. In the fifth dispute, God calls the people to turn back to him, to which the people say, how can we turn back? And so God confronts their selfishness. He shows how they've stopped offering a tithe of their income to the temple. Now, that word tithe just means one-tenth. It's the amount of their income and produce that the Israelites were to annually donate to support the temple and its priests. The practice is laid out in different parts of the Torah. Now, we know from Malachi and from the book of Nehemiah that the people were neglecting this responsibility. And so the temple was falling into disrepair. And so God confronts them. He says he wants to bless them with abundance, but only if they're going to be faithful. In the final dispute, the people accuse God and say that it's pointless to serve him. They observe wicked, prideful people succeeding in life, and God does nothing. And God's response, for the first time in the book, is not a speech but rather a short story about the faithful remnant in Israel, people who fear the Lord and they love to get together and talk about how to honor God and serve him. And so God orders that a scroll of remembrance be written for these people so that they can read the scroll and remember God's character and promises. Malachi, he's reflecting here on the divine gift of the scriptures, how they point us to the past to remember what God has done in order to inspire faithfulness and hope for the future. Which leads to the conclusion of the book. It picks up and develops the imagery of the fourth dispute about the coming day of the Lord, but it develops it further. God says that he's appointed a day of purifying judgment that will consume the wicked from among his people. But what the conclusion adds is the future of the faithful remnant. Because for them, the day of the Lord is not a threat. It's a cause for joy. It'll be like the rays of the rising sun that bring healing and life and hope for the future. And so Malachi's disputes come to a close, but there's still a bit more to this book. The final three verses, they're not part of the disputes, and actually they function like a concluding appendix, bringing closure not just to Malachi, but to the whole collection of the Torah and the prophets. So first, the reader is called to remember the law, or the Torah, of my servant Moses. This recalls the story and the laws of the covenant that you find in the first five books of the Bible. But then we hear this summary of the books of the prophets. I will send the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord, who will restore the hearts of God's people. So this conclusion, it summarizes the Torah and the prophets as a unified story that points to the future. Israel was redeemed by God, and then they betrayed him through their rebellion and hard hearts, breaking the laws of the Torah. But the scriptures anticipate a future day, when God's going to send a new prophet, a Moses, a new Elijah, who will restore God's people and heal their hard hearts. Remember all of the promises from Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. 
And so this concluding appendix presents the scriptures as a divine gift to read and to ponder and to pray over. They tell the truth about the human condition, about our selfishness and our sin. But they also announce God's promise that one day he would send a messenger and then show up personally to confront evil, to restore his people and bring his healing justice. And it's that future hope that Malachi and the Torah and all of the prophets are about. I don't know about anybody else, but the whole back and forth of um, God saying one thing and the people saying, what? How? What did we do? I felt like that was an argument I would have with a teenager. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> you don't see what you're doing? Um, and then it's convicting because it's like, oh, but also that's, that's what we do um, all the time. So, let me see. So I just picked some verses out of each chapter. There's only four chapters in Malachi. It's a very short book. Um, so, oh, that someone among you would shut the temple doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hands. Um, so... I have reasons for picking each of the verses, but I'd love to hear if that strikes anything with you or if you have any thoughts about that in this particular context or even how and what I have thought about as I'm reading the prophets, which isn't something that I thought about growing up necessarily because the Old Testament was sort of the second place of, you know, it was okay, you had to have a New Testament. It was okay if you read the Old Testament, but like, <laughs> you know, and as I realized that Jesus quoted the prophets when he was coming into his own ministry and announcing himself, and he quoted the prophets and all throughout his ministry, there's a reason that we need to study the prophets. And so I think that it's acceptable to think about these in, in our own lives and context as long as we're also aware of the context and the purposes that they're originally written. So I'm asking that in a very broad way. What do you think about this? Does, do you think of anything in particular? To me, it's just very interesting that, and I know that, that the Old Testament is not necessarily chronological, but in the very last chapter of the Old Testament, God's promise to Abraham is still not fulfilled like because of because of our actions because of you know what we have done like it's still not there yet and so while this gives me sadness the fact that we haven't figured it out there's also a little bit of hope that is that I can be like Israel sometimes and still not get it and still not see what I'm doing wrong mm -hmm. and God has been faithful God is God is very like here he's very firm of do not, you know, take, I take no pleasure in you, but I still love you. Like, that, that's a very conflicting feeling sometimes to, to accept from God is that he's not pleased with me, but he still loves me, and he still wants for me. You know, with uh, God being the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he would... His heart is the same. His intentions toward us are the same. His 
longing for a relationship is the same. I, I, I look at it and look at my brokenness or whatever, and I think of kindling a fire or, or don't say prayers if you're not living a life that's honoring your prayers. Don't don't pray and then and then not walk in that prayer. So don't kindle useless fires. Don't don't you know if it's if it's not there then it's useless kind of a deal. And and I I, I guess I automatically saw that as prayer and saw that as us you know that that faith without works is dead that kind of thing. You know what I mean? And so to that uh, there is a way that we can. Uh, pray on almost not deaf ears but, but pray in vain if we pray contrary to our nature pray contrary to our, our way of life and we could be praying in vain and so that's kind of what made me think I kind of have mixed feelings about it because it's so harsh uh, and sometimes I feel like at least people are coming to church you know I mean they could not come at all but he's kind of saying, I kind of wish you wouldn't do this at all. Um, which, you know, I, I, would, I tend to take a more positive view. <laughs> but I guess, like the comment was, you know, if you're doing it with a totally wrong motivation or you're not, you're not sincere, can it do more harm than good to go through just the motions? You know, because there's a part of me that's like, well, at least, at least you're coming, at least, you know, and then, yeah. Well, as as he was talking about, I thought of how in my youth, people would probably rightly say, sometimes you do have to fake it till you feel like. Sometimes, that's right. just because you don't feel the faith doesn't mean that you kind of work through it. And so it does give me a little bit of concern of like, well, if I'm faking it till I feel it, then and God says, well, if you're not feeling it, then get it. I don't think that's what he's saying, but I'm right. still, I, I, I hear that, that consternation or that concern. So. I see it differently than that, though, that he's trying to get our attention. I think it's very easy to have some kind of a performance or a, a pattern that we play through, and we substitute that for what is real, and I think it's... Yeah, sometimes we come and we're not in the mood, and sometimes we come and we're struggling. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. I think this is where we're doing it. Um, we're offering a, a clear inf substitute. We're not offering faith, but we're offering a performance or a, um, going through the motions. And I think he's trying to get our attention. This, this is desperately not going to be what you need to be doing or this is this is not bringing you close to me let me get your attention there is something you need to address here yeah it's bad actually bad for you to yeah very much like you would an adolescent that's yeah. that's behaving in a way that you know is unhealthy that you're substituting something and until we face that what we're substituting is unreal then we're not going to look after what's what is real? If we're if it's an afterthought, if we're checking the box, yes, like God said, yes, like He says, yes, better yes. off not doing it. If you're if you're doing it to because you're doing it out of works or you're doing it out of uh, obligation and not out of relationship, you're not. Yeah, I like that. And I think this goes back to <clears throat> what Jacob has helped us kind of see through his y'all version of that. You know, it, this is when it says you. This is not he. God's not directly directing this to me. This is corporately, and I think sometimes we don't necessarily 
when we are giving our our sacrifice or when we're giving our time or anything, we never think about how that is collectively how that collectively looks. You know, and in the in the Bible project when they were talking about how the priests were just kind of accepting it, mm-hmm. you know, that's a collective problem. That's not a that's not the yes, it's on the priest's fault, but it's also on the person who's doing it and it's a collective of the people who are witnessing it. And so I think it is a good reminder that we are collectively coming to Jesus to respond, or to God to respond, and collectively He is He can be saying, "Do not, do not trivialize what this is about." Yeah, all good words. Um, in chapter two, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And then skipping 12, just for time's sake. And this you do as well. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor at your hand. You ask, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And one of the commentaries that I read talked about how this um, could, a lot of readings, it is literal, that this was a literal problem of, um, and there's other evidence to support that this is a literal problem of husbands leaving their wives for no good reason. And there's also thoughts that um, this could be a metaphor, like the book of Hosea is a metaphor for the relationship of the people and to God. And, um, And I honestly, when I was reading the chapters all together, I read it, it could have been either, the way that he was frustrated, the way that God was frustrated with the offerings, and um, and, and maybe it's yes and, maybe it is both. Um, but do you all have any thoughts or perspectives about this particular part of the scripture? Calling out the adulter, adulterers and... Well, I always heard it preached as literal, mm-hmm. and because this is one of the strong, you know, God hates divorce mm-hmm. type things, and that's the way I always heard it. That's how I always heard um, it. But I do know too that that's a common theme in the prophets is you know Israel has been unfaithful to God, so that marriage metaphor, mm-hmm. and then there that's a, then Paul says in Ephesians five that you know a man shall leave his wife and quotes from Genesis and they come one flesh or not leave his mother and father not leave his wife leave his mother and father cling to his wife become one flesh and this is a mystery he says but I'm talking about Christ and the church right and we're all like what are you what do you mean <laughs> you know but so there is something from the very beginning about marriage that is a metaphor which this is blowing my mind to try to understand it but uh, so in some ways what it could be literal, and even if it is literal, it's still also a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if yeah, at the very least, the metaphor fits all the way through. Like you can apply it 
to the the body of Christ as well. You know what I mean? And so whether it's literal or whether the, the, you can apply it, make it that metaphor. You know what I mean? And so it fits. So I think that's neat and beautiful. I never thought of that either. Well, it's it's also it's just it's just an example of hey y'all y'all aren't doing what I asked you to do, and mm -hmm. there's nothing about this that's compliant with my teachings. Mm -hmm. You know, leaving your wife. Got other gods. What? Why are you arguing with me? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of just like the. To me, that's. I got you. Got you. Got you out. So. You're not doing your part. So why? Why are we arguing about this? Yeah, and it struck me. Um, the the way that, the offerings are described as being sick and lame and. It made me think, you know, I we probably have all been in relationships where one of us is trying really hard and the other one is giving lame attempts <laughs> and then being, like, surprised when you're upset, you know. Uh, that's funny. That's good. <laughs> and so that's kind of what I thought of. Like, it definitely, to me, felt like a yes and. Like, if you're doing this with me with your offerings, you're also probably doing this in your own life. Yeah, that's who you are. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I like that. But there's also apparently a considerable effort at self-deception because mm -hmm. you're covering the altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. I mean, mm -hmm. you're going through the motions of saying, "Why well, aren't you, you know? Why isn't this okay?" Which I just think is the human condition. Absolutely. I, I think it is I so, so easy to justify our behavior and, and say, I'm doing it all right, why aren't you satisfied? Uh, instead of that really hard self-analysis of what what am I, you know, where where am I meeting the person that God intends me to be and where am I just, you know, playing at it? Yes. Such a good point. Yeah, I heard a guy say one time he like he he would bring his wife flowers and she'd be like, okay, whatever, you know. He he didn't she didn't really appreciate it because she realized there was a when he left his work there was somebody selling flowers right across the street out of the trunk of a car or something. It was very easy for him and he would stop and get them. But she's like, You didn't try very hard on this. <laughs> like, <laughs> she didn't appreciate it. He thought, I'm doing this great thing and he realized, well, I was really just doing something that was easy and trying to get full credit for it. Yeah, and then I would wonder, like, what you know, is he also offering to help with the chores? Of yeah, the yeah. And, like doing all the other things. Doing the dishes would have been appreciated. A right. Lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Sure. To speak to what he said about this being a, a um, that there was a collective thing. It's so funny. I have a dear friend who's just so almost at war with corporate church because it is it has made it where it's the checkbox. I made it to Sunday, so I did my church, and so I did my God. Oh, it's Sunday, so we got to be on our best because this is the God day instead of our life is a God life, you know. Uh, but this all the way back, that was that collective mistake of, well, we're all doing it all the way back to, to when Aaron was making the, the bull, when Moses hadn't come back. And, and why did everybody, why was everybody okay with it? Mm. I think that a lot of them weren't. Maybe some of the tears are the ones that don't say nothing, but maybe you're torn because they know that it shouldn't be a defective goat. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so this, this thing about us falling into the collective, that's, you know, our, we work out our own 
salvation with fear and trembling, but at the same time, we are a body, you know, and so it goes all the way back. It's a, it's a timeless issue, it looks like. Very good point. Very good. So in the third chapter, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and another translation would say launderer's soap. I wasn't sure what a fuller was. So. Yeah. Um, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. <coughs> then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for, your, for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired workers and their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Any immediate thoughts or reactions to that? Well, this, he's clearly going after the priest here. I mean, because the descendants of Levi were the priestly people. So this is, he's creating some judgment over the fact that they are not, they're not doing what they're supposed to do of presenting the offering the, the righteous offerings. Mm. Observation. I know it said in the video that they hadn't really changed after the exile, but they Israel never really didn't go worships foreign gods. I mean, in some sense, I think the exile was was successful. Um, it just seems to me that um, you know that it, they did learn from it. At least there's always a remnant that, yeah. that learns from it, um, and that's part of what difficult you know God's God does. I, according to the Bible, God does bring suffering sometimes as a form of refining. Mm -hmm. Not all. I mean, it can't always be that way. We have Job against that, but there is yeah. something about that. And I think it's the exile also shows that there is they still they never gave up on God. Like they could always be called back to God through through something. I think that is something that gives me hope of when I feel why or I feel the hopelessness. Um, that there is the fact that there is that still that little bit of fire in me that still like no I know no other way but God. And that's that's very Israel of there's there's still, there's still that desire, that still pull or magnetic pull to, to go to God, even if I don't understand or even if I don't want to accept the judgment. We have peaks and valleys in our lives too. We have seasons. Come home after church camp and you're amped up and you get to school and the kids are cussing around you and you kind of, you know, three weeks in, it's, it seems like it was a long time ago. And then you go to the fall retreat and you get amped back up, you know what I mean? So, you know, I think they were humans and I think that they got wore out and I think they, you know, the lady that got divorced, she raised a son who said, look what, you know what I mean? And all that thing that life does to you. You all probably are familiar with, um, you know, when you refine silver and gold, you probably heard that before. I was lucky enough to take a metalsmithing class in college, and I got to actually melt the silver awesome. and pour it into the little vat 
I've lost all the correct vocabulary, but, um, and then you would watch it and it would bubble and all the gross stuff would bubble up to the top and then I would scoop it off and put it in the trash basically. And that was the only way to get all of the impurities out of the metal. And it was, I would think about the refiner's fire in the Bible and how that would have been such a tangible example for the people because they were constantly having to make their tools and melt down metal and um and so I I also heard once I think probably from David Rubio you know a prayer of I hope you know my kid I'm not going to say it the way he does but I hope that my kids have a great day and if they do something wrong I hope they get caught Oh. <laughs> and um, you know that's that was his that's prayer right. for, and that's been my prayer. And I think it's a great gift when we are caught in a refiner's fire because, even though it's really hard, that discipline. Everyone doesn't have that opportunity for whatever reason. Either we're not surrounded by brave, courageous people to call us out on our stuff, or we don't happen to reap the consequences of our own choices for whatever reason. But when we do, it's, and it's a true refining, then how much greater is it, how much closer to God? At least that's been my experience, to be able to, I wouldn't trade the hard parts of my life because I feel like I'm so much more closer to God because of them. And I'm not saying that God necessarily said, this is the path you're going to be on so that you will have all this heartache, but... It's because of choices I made and choices that I was a part of. And because I had people in my life who I feel like were speaking for God and were helping me to see how it was refining. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what I thought of when I read this particular thing. You know, what you said on how it's refining, because you can be in the fire, those people that live in the fire and they never scoop the dirt out. You know what I mean? They just live in the fire and that, yeah. and just you know, and so all they know is fire, and and so it's not a refiner's fire; it's just fire. You know? That's right. I've never thought of that because if you if you let it sit and the and then if you let it cool, then the dirt will still be on top. You have to have someone to scoop it off, and I think that's that helps me with the metaphor even more because I did have those wise people around me that were sort of <coughs> helping me yeah. see how to. Awareness of what you have. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, in the in the recovery world, they talk about eventually you those that stay in recovery eventually will come into place of gratitude, mm-hmm. of thankful that they are they do have this addiction mm-hmm. because it has helped them become more. And that's clearly what you were referencing before. Mm-hmm. And so many times we see in the in the moment, and we forget to pull out a little bit and go. God is helping us. You know, in the moment it feels painful. In the moment, it's it's a question of why are these things happening, or even sometimes why am I, why do I have to be refined? You know, similar to what they were saying was, what do you mean? I'm, I'm, we're good. Um, but as that's being pulled out, sometimes it can even feel like so painful and so frustrating, and you you can't see how this will come to a good solution in end, um, a good resolution, and. You know, when we when we go through death of loved ones or when we go through 
the pain of, of something, it, it's, it feels so intangible, the fact that something good could come out of it. Mm. But over time, I feel like God's uh, faithfulness will, will come out and we will see not necessarily how that moment was good, but how he has been able to use that moment to help us help other people. Yeah. And that's that goes back to the collective of we you know, it's it's not just the purification of one person, it's your purification may be able to help someone else in their own purification. Because the people who mentored you can say, I remember a time when I too felt like all of my impurities were rising to the top and this is what I had to do in order to live a more refined life. And I do appreciate the distinction that you made earlier with Job because I think it's two different things. I think that there are injustices and hardship that are not the refiner's fire that can be used for good and gratitude, but I think it is different than what this particular thing is talking about, which is, you know, the mess that we put ourselves in and the impurities in our own hearts. And that's where I think that could be wrong, but I think that's what this particular context is. And and then I also noted that, you know, um, there's there back to the collective, there is the the individual refining, um, the literal sense of adultery or um, yeah, clearly it's there is a literal aspect to it because he lists it, yeah. But there's also a collective of oppressing hired workers and their wages and the widow and the orphan and um, those feel more like a communal decision of we're going to thrust aside the alien um, and not pay attention to the widows and the orphans and, and I thought that was... That was interesting too. So if that's true, that that is more of a collective, does that inherently call us to a place of accountability for other people within our our community of how they do business? I mean, it, it, yeah, it, that's interesting. It, it, I don't know how the person who sits in the pew beside me necessarily is doing their business, mm -hmm. but it seems like that there is a collective call to at least, I mean, if you see someone who is uh, doing a going get sorcerer, or you know, th those things may be a little bit easier. Or if you see someone who is who has a some idolatry problems with against something, you know. But some of the stuff, because of how it almost calls into question of how we do community and how on on the daily day in day out versus what we see on Sunday, like that. To me, that almost calls into like that's why small groups or or anything of that nature where you can kind of see more how they live in a day to day life. So you can call them out in a loving way, but also to collectively help help refine us. In order to do that, you have there, we need to be in relationship. One another, we're relational creatures. You'd have to be in deep relationship with someone to be able to broach that subject. I was wondering about, you know, I was sitting there thinking about the the, the job aspect, and man, I, I, I don't, I think that the the, the Bible's clear that it says that, that all things work out for good, that lo, those who love the Lord don't stop there and work in accordance 
with his word. And so I think that every that this world is broken. And I think that the devil is a lion that's seeking those he can devour. And I think that there is disease, and Ecclesiastes makes it clear, and that our attitude toward everything, whether it's our fault or it happened to us, it will be a refiner's fire. Because God wants all things, not all good things, but all things to work out for good for those who are in the fight, who are walking the walk and trying their best, you know, and falling down and messing up, but standing up and reaching for God, you know. So I think everything in our life is is meant for our glory if we respond well to it, because all things work out for good, right? I mean, you know what I mean? And so uh, I don't know that there is aimless things that, that, you know, on that Job experiment deal, you know what I mean? I struggle with that. And so anyway, I just wanted to say that. Yeah. I do think there are consequences when we don't worship God, we're going to worship something else. Yes. As a collective, uh, that leads to people being greedy and not treating people well because they just want money and they're, they're going to oppress people that not pay people fairly and all that, all that thing. There's consequence, real, real life consequences for people on the margins when our, our culture is sick and yes. worshiping things that aren't bad. So chapter four. Ooh. I just want to make one quick note that um, one of the commentaries I read said that this particular verse was one of the reasons that the Jewish people are still waiting for Elijah. You know, that this is a very messianic book and the Christian faith uses this as fulfillment of prophecy when we see Jesus come and fulfill the prophecies. Um, but this is one of the, the reasons that the Jewish people are still waiting. Um, and because we're out of time, if you want to read more, these are all of the different New Testament moments that specifically, well, there's three more slides. Um, but um, this is all the times in the New Testament that Malachi is referenced. And I just think that that's really cool, you know. Um, it's from the Andrew Hill commentary if you're interested. But. Um, there's lots and lots of references just to Malachi, and I thought that was good. And Malachi is last in the Christian Bible. Right. And there's a reason why they organized the books the way they did. Uh, and Malachi is also chronologically one of the last written, but it's also, they put it last because it appropriately leads into Matthew Right. John the Baptist as Elijah and mm -hmm. that type of thing. Yeah. So, but in the Jewish canon, Chronicles is last. That's not right. Malachi. But for when the, in the history of the canon, they it was a Christian decision to to organize it topically, and they put the prophets at the end, and then they put Malachi at the end of the prophets. And put it. It's a yes. nice segue into the New Testament. Yeah. And it kind of with that promise at the end of. Um, you know, the gift of the scriptures, I can see how yeah. that would make sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He is talking about the time after the temple was rebuilt, mm -hmm. so that would be late. 
Well, anyway, I love that little graph, so come, we're not going to do that. Um, come back next week, because George is going to teach Obadiah. So, thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Great job.